This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of exercise science from the knee and sports section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode talking about types of contractions slash movements. We'll go over isotonic contractions, isometric contractions, concentric contractions, eccentric contractions, isokinetic contractions, plyometric contractions, open chain exercises, and closed chain exercises. So starting with isotonic contractions, this is defined as the force remaining constant through range of motion, which improves motor performance. An example is bicep curls using free weights. An isometric contraction is defined as constant muscle length and tension that is proportional to the external load, which causes muscle hypertrophy. An example is pushing against an immovable object. A concentric contraction is defined as a shortened muscle and tension that is proportional to the external load. An example is a biceps curl with the elbow flexing. An eccentric contraction is defined as the force remaining constant as the muscle lengthens. This is the most efficient method of strengthening muscle. An example is a biceps curl with the elbow extending. Moving on to isokinetic contractions, this is when the muscle contracts at a constant velocity through varied resistance, often used to objectively evaluate muscle strength during injury rehabilitation. Keep in mind that isokinetic contractions require special machines, for example, a Cybex machine. Plyometric contractions are defined as rapid eccentric-concentric shortening and is good training for sports that require power. An example of a plyometric exercise is box jumps. An open chain exercise is when the distal end of the extremity moves freely, for example, seated leg extensions and curls. Finally, a closed chain exercise is when the distal end of the extremity is fixed, and an example is squats with planted feet. Now let's talk about the differences between anaerobic, glycolytic, and aerobic activity with respect to energy sources used, muscle types involved, and the exercise duration associated with each. So anaerobic metabolism uses the ATP creatine phosphate system for its energy source. Type 2 or fast twitch muscles are associated with anaerobic activity. And as far as exercise duration for anaerobic metabolism, it's typically associated with 10 seconds of high intensity, so sprinting is an example of this. And just a quick note about type 2 muscles, type 2A muscles can either be aerobic or anaerobic, while type 2B muscles are primarily anaerobic. Type 2 muscles typically have a high strength of contraction and high speed of contraction, where there is a large force generation per cross-sectional area, and these muscles typically fatigue rapidly. Moving on to glycolytic metabolism, this uses lactic acid as its energy source, and glycolytic exercise duration is usually 2-3 to three minutes. Glycolytic metabolism has a low ATP yield, and you will go into lactic acidosis after several minutes. Finally, aerobic metabolism uses oxidative phosphorylation via the Krebs cycle for its energy source. Type 1 or slow twitch muscles are aerobic, and as far as exercise duration, these muscles are designed for endurance, like distance running. Unlike type 2 fast twitch muscles, they have low strength of contraction as well as low speed of contraction, and they are the first ones to atrophy with deconditioning. Remember that aerobic metabolism has a high ATP yield, unlike glycolytic metabolism, and also remember that it requires oxygen. So if it helps you remember, think of the mnemonic one slow red ox, which means type 1 muscles are slow twitch, red, and use oxidative metabolism. Now let's go over some important exercise program definitions. Starting with periodization, this is a strength and conditioning term for planned variation in intensity and duration of a specific workout over a predefined duration of time. Moving on to another term, know that dynamic exercise improves cardiac output by increasing cardiac stroke volume. The next term is endurance or aerobic training, 
which we kind of briefly talked about already, but endurance training results in changes in circulation and muscle metabolism. Contractile muscle adapts by increasing energy efficiency with endurance training, and it also increases mitochondrial size, number, and density. It also increases in enzymes involved in the Krebs cycle, fatty acid processing, and the respiratory chain. Over time with endurance training, there is an increased use of fatty acids more than glycogen. Also over time, the oxidative capacity of type 1, 2A, and 2B fibers increases with endurance training, and specifically, the percentage of more highly oxygenated 2A fibers increases. There's a term called the aerobic threshold, which is the level of effort at which anaerobic energy pathways become significant energy producers. The anaerobic or lactate threshold, on the other hand, is the level of effort at which lactate production is greater than lactate removal. Moving on to strength training, this typically involves high load, low repetition activities, and subsequently results in increased cross-sectional area of muscle due to muscle hypertrophy. Hyperplasia, or increased number of muscle fibers, is less likely. Strength training results in increased motor unit recruitment, plus or minus improved synchronization of muscle activity. And remember that maximal force production is proportional to the muscle's physiologic cross-sectional area. Now, just a quick word about adolescence and weight training. So know that adolescents can safely participate in appropriate strength training programs. Gains in strength are largely due to improved neuromuscular activation and coordination rather than muscle hypertrophy. Gains for adolescents are reversible if training is discontinued. Now, let's talk about aquatic training. So the benefits of aquatic training is decreasing joint stress by lowering the vertical components of the ground reaction force through buoyancy. It has unique advantages in cardiorespiratory fitness when compared to land training. There are also less abrupt increases in heart rate, increased oxygen consumption, and it prevents secondary injuries to the lower limb. Moving on to exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction, or EILO, this is commonly mistaken for exercise-induced bronchoconstriction in athletes. As far as the epidemiology, it tends to be more common in females. The mechanism is unknown. The symptoms include dyspnea and wheezing. Differential diagnoses include exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, otherwise known as exercise-induced asthma. Other diagnoses on the differential include hyperventilation and certain cardiac conditions. So as far as diagnosis, if a patient has a positive bronchodilator reversibility test, which is done with a beta-2 agonist, they have exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. If a patient has a negative bronchodilator reversibility test, they have exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction, or EILO. If a patient has positive bronchoprovocation test, or BPT, which includes things like the methacholine challenge, mannitol challenge, or a eucapnic voluntary hyperventilation test, they have exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. If they have a negative bronchoprovocation test, they have exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction, or EILO. If a patient has a positive continuous laryngoscopy during exercise, or CLE, they have EILO, and if they have a negative continuous laryngoscopy during exercise, they have exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. As far as types of exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction, there's the supraglottic level type and the glottic level type. In terms of treatment of exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction, optimum treatment is being investigated. Now, let's talk about exercise-induced hematuria. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, microscopic hematuria is present in 16.7 to 46.7% of athletes. Macroscopic hematuria is present in 3.1 to 19.2% of athletes. Risk factors include exercise intensity, posture, age, heat load, altitude, and pre-existing kidney disease. 
The proposed pathophysiology of exercise-induced hematuria is bladder-slash-kidney contusion from up-and-down motion, as well as vascular spasm to the kidney. In terms of presentation, patients will have a history of presence of hematuria that correlates with increased exercise intensity. As far as symptoms, patients are usually asymptomatic. The differential diagnosis of exercise-induced hematuria includes urinary tract infection or sexually transmitted infection. However, these patients will have pyuria and dysuria. Another diagnosis on the differential is papillary necrosis. However, patients will typically have a personal or family history of sickle cell trait or disease. Another diagnosis on the differential is kidney contusion. However, these patients will have a history of a blunt impact to the flank and flank pain. And finally, another diagnosis on the differential is a kidney stone. However, these patients will have dysuria and flank pain. As far as the treatment of exercise-induced hematuria, this will be non-operative and will include things like cessation of exercise and repeating urinalysis in 48 to 72 hours. Further workup is indicated if hematuria persists greater than 7 days after cessation of exercise and if the patient is over age 50. Now, let's move on to weight training. So the effect of weight training on muscles includes increased cross-sectional area, increased strength, increased mitochondria, increased capillary density, and a thickened connective tissue. Know that adult strength gains are associated with muscle hypertrophy, while adolescent strength gains, remember, occur more from increased muscle firing efficiency and coordination. Moving on to nutritional training, carbohydrate loading is a strategy that involves increasing carbohydrates three days prior to an event and decreasing physical activity to build up carbohydrate stores. This increases the stores of muscle glycogen to provide improved endurance, especially in events lasting greater than 90 minutes, when the body's normal supply of glycogen runs low. Keep in mind that the best technique for an athlete is to instead maintain a normal diet. As far as fluid loading and replacement, know that the magnitude of core temperature and heart rate increase accompanying work are proportional to the magnitude of water debt at the onset of exercise. The best technique is to replace enough water to maintain pre-practice weight. Finally, in terms of fluid carbohydrate and electrolyte replacement, this is best done with low osmolarity fluids of carbohydrates and electrolytes, which enhances absorption in the gut. Note that low osmolarity is defined as less than 10%. And also remember that glucose polymers decrease osmolarity. Moving on to muscle injury, let's go over the differences between muscle soreness, muscle strain, muscle contusion, and muscle laceration. So muscle soreness is caused by edema and inflammation in the connective tissue and this leads to increased intramuscular pressure and occurs primarily in type 2B fibers. Muscle soreness will be worse with unaccustomed eccentric exercise. Muscle soreness will often present with delayed onset, otherwise known as delayed onset muscle soreness or DOMS, which peaks at 24 to 72 hours. Muscle soreness will also be associated with elevated CK levels seen in the serum. Muscle strain occurs commonly at the myotendinous junction, often during eccentric contraction, which produces the highest forces in skeletal muscle. A muscle strain involves pathoanatomy and inflammation followed by fibrosis. A muscle contusion is secondary to a non-penetrating blunt injury. This leads to hematoma and inflammation. Know that extracellular connective tissue forms within two days and peaks between five to 21 days. Healing is characterized by late scar formation and variable muscle regeneration. Myositis ossificans is when there is bone formation within the muscle tissue and is most apparent four weeks post-injury. Muscle laceration, or a complete tear, typically occurs near the myotendinous junction and is characterized by abnormal muscle contour. Fragments heal by dense connective scar tissue and is mediated by myofibroblasts. Remember that TGF-beta stimulates differentiation and proliferation of myofibroblasts. 
Finally, in terms of regeneration and reinnervation, this is unpredictable and likely incomplete. Now let's talk about muscle immobilization. Know that this can result in shorter muscle position and atrophy, and this can lead to decreased ability to generate tension and increased fatigability. It can also result in fatty infiltration. Know that atrophy occurs faster in muscles crossing a single joint. Another important point to mention is that atrophy occurs at a nonlinear rate, and most changes occur during the initial days of disuse and seen at the cellular level as loss of myofibrils within the fibers, and remember that atrophy is related to the duration of immobilization. Atrophy is more prominent if immobilization occurs without tension. For example, quadriceps atrophy is greater than hamstrings atrophy with knee immobilization and extension. Now, let's end this review session talking about treatment for muscle injuries. So local treatments are designed to assist with soft tissue recovery or rehabilitation. Goals of treatment includes decreasing inflammation, increasing local blood flow, and increasing tissue compliance. Modalities include cryo or heat treatments, massage, ultrasound, electrical stimulation, and iontophoresis, which is the use of an electrical current to drive charged molecules of medicine through the skin to the deep tissues. Medications can include steroids, local anesthetics, salicylates, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Contraindications include susceptibility to applied currents, for example cardiac pacemakers, as well as hypersensitivity slash allergy to the drug used. Now let's go over the different indications for iontophoresis, as well as the drug slash solution used in these different cases. So one indication for iontophoresis is hyperhidrosis, and the iontophoresis drug slash solution used will be tap water and or glycopyrrolate. In the setting of muscle spasm, you can use magnesium sulfate and calcium chloride with iontophoresis. In the setting of edema, you can use hyaluronidase with iontophoresis. In the setting of adhesive conditions, you can use iodine with iontophoresis. With inflammation, you can use dexamethasone, hydrocortisone, prednisone, lidocaine, and or salicylates with iontophoresis. In the setting of calcific tendonitis and myositis ossificans, you can use acetic acid with iontophoresis. Finally, in the setting of open wounds, you can use zinc oxide and tolazolene hydrochloride with iontophoresis. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. What is the primary energy substrate for skeletal muscle during anaerobic activity lasting less than 10 seconds? And the choices are 1. ATP and creatine phosphate, 2. Fatty acids, 3. Glycogen, 4. Glucose, and 5. Lactic acid. The correct answer to this question is 1. ATP and creatine phosphate. So the primary energy substrate for anaerobic muscle activity lasting less than 10 seconds is ATP and creatine phosphate. To quickly review, muscle energy substrates vary depending on aerobic or anaerobic exercise. It is also influenced by the duration of the exercise. Aerobic respiration is significantly more effective at releasing energy than anaerobic respiration. This is due to the aerobic processes being able to extract most of the glucose molecules energy in the form of ATP. Conversely, anaerobic processes leave most of the ATP-generating sources in waste products. Anaerobic processes predominate in short exercise duration, whereas aerobic processes dominate endurance exercises. In strictly anaerobic activities lasting less than 10 seconds, ATP and creatine phosphate are predominantly utilized by skeletal muscle. As activities continue, glycogen becomes an energy substrate that is utilized. During aerobic and anaerobic exercise lasting between 1 and 4 minutes, 
glycogen, and lactic acid become predominant substrates utilized by skeletal muscle. Lastly, during strictly aerobic activities lasting greater than 4 minutes, glycogen and fatty acids are the preferred substrate. Starin et al. summarized the delineation, development, and distribution of human skeletal muscle fiber types. They identified a total of 7 fiber types, with most human muscles having MATPase-based fiber types that correlate with the myosin heavy chain content. They conclude that although the major populations of fast and slow fiber are established shortly after birth, subtle alterations take place throughout life. Lamarnier et al. reviewed muscle regeneration mechanisms. They identified three main phases in the process of muscle regeneration. A destruction phase with the initial inflammatory response, a regeneration phase with activation and proliferation of satellite cells, and a remodeling phase with the maturation of the regenerated myofibers. They conclude that therapeutic approaches have limited effectiveness and optimal strategies for such lesions are not known yet. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2, fatty acids, answer 3, glycogen, and answer 4, glucose are all incorrect as during aerobic-only activities lasting longer than 4 minutes, glycogen slash glucose and fatty acids are the preferred substrate. Finally, answer 5, lactic acid, has a low ATP yield and predominates with exercise lasting a duration of 2 to 3 minutes. Moving on to the next question, which of the following correctly describes type 1 muscle fibers? And the choices are 1, fast oxidative glycolytic and is last to be recruited, 2, fast glycolytic and is the first to be recruited, 3, fast glycolytic and last to be recruited, 4, slow oxidative and first to be recruited, and 5, slow oxidative and last to be recruited. The correct answer to this question is 4, slow oxidative, and it's the first to be recruited. So type 1 muscle fibers are slow oxidative and are the first to be recruited during muscle activation. Variability in the isoforms of the contractile and structural proteins result in the different myofibril types. Most important are the types of myosin ATP, which produce fast and slow forms of myosin, resulting in three general muscle fiber types, slow oxidative or type 1, fast oxidative glycolytic or type 2A, and fast glycolytic or type 2B. When myofibrils are activated, the smaller type 1 units are activated first, whereas the larger type 2A and 2B units are activated when more forceful contractions are necessary. Type 1 fibers are smaller and contract more slowly and less forcefully, but are fatigue resistant. Type 2A units are intermediate, and type 2B units are the fastest and most powerful, but also the most fatigue prone. Starin published a review on human muscle fiber types. They state that children 2 to 5 years old have a higher percentage of type 1 fibers than newborns and adults. Aging causes loss of function from sarcopenia, that is loss of muscle mass, loss of motor units, particularly type 2, and reduced maximum oxygen consumption beginning at 25 years old. Regarding sex differences, females have muscles 40% smaller than men because of smaller fibers and fewer total number of fibers diameter cross-sectional area. Scott et al. published a review on human skeletal muscle fiber type classifications. They reported that muscle fiber types can be described using histochemical, biochemical, morphological, or physiologic characteristics. Histological analysis in particular showed that there is a correlation between myosin ATPase activity and the speed of muscle shortening and led to the original division of muscle fibers into type 1 or slow and type 2 or fast. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, all the other answer choices are incorrect as type 1 muscle fibers are slow oxidative and are the first to be recruited during muscle activation. And moving on to the final question, 
A 24-year-old elite runner completes his fifth Boston Marathon in a personal record time of three hours and five minutes. What is the predominant energy source being utilized during the final hour of his marathon? And the choices are one, creatine phosphate, two, lactic acids, three, muscle glycogen, four, free fatty acids, and five, liver glycogen. The correct answer to this question is four, free fatty acids. So during prolonged steady state endurance events, such as a marathon, the predominant muscle energy source is in glycogen early in the event and free fatty acids after about 90 minutes. To quickly review, the different energy substrates used during aerobic and anaerobic activities is based upon duration, intensity, primary muscle fiber type activated, and energy source. Aerobic activities are low to moderate intensity that utilize type 1 muscle fibers and glycogen as its primary energy source for about 90 minutes or until stores have been depleted. This is different for each athlete depending on diet, training regimen, and genetics. Prolonged steady-state exercise lasting several hours is characterized by a shift towards increased lipid oxidation and reduced carbohydrate oxidation rates. This shift in oxidation rates is accompanied by an increased contribution of plasma fatty acids towards energy expenditure and a decreased reliance on both muscle glycogen and intramuscular triglycerides. Neumann et al. state glycogen is an essential substrate during high-intensity exercise by providing a mechanism by which adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, can be resynthesized from adenosine diphosphate, or ADP, and phosphate. The relative use of energy sources during exercise is mainly determined by the intensity and the duration of the exercise bout, as well as the athlete's training status. Although the amount of liver and skeletal muscle glycogen is relatively small compared to endogenously stored fat, glycogen is recognized as the major source for fuel during prolonged moderate to high-intensity endurance exercise. Sinsas et al. studied the effects of carbohydrate supplementation during exercise. When carbohydrates are taken during exercise, the carbohydrate feeding during exercise augments exercise performance via multiple mechanisms, consisting of muscle glycogen sparing, liver glycogen sparing, and maintenance of plasma glucose and carbohydrate oxidation rates. Bergstrom et al. found glycogen availability is essential to power ATP resynthesis during high-intensity exercise, which relies heavily on glycogenolysis. Furthermore, it has been well documented that the capability of skeletal muscle to exercise is impaired when the glycogen store is reduced to a certain level, even when there is sufficient amount of other fuels available. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, creatine phosphate is incorrect, as this has a short energy supply and is utilized during short, high-energy anaerobic metabolism. Answer 2, lactic acids is incorrect, as lactate metabolism occurs during intense exercise in low-glucose conditions. Answer 3, muscle glycogen is incorrect, as muscle glycogen is a predominant energy substrate early that is less than 90 minutes in endurance exercise. Finally, answer 5, liver glycogen is incorrect, as liver glycogen is also mobilized early during endurance exercise and is the secondary source of glucose to the larger muscle glycogen stores. That's all for this review about exercise science. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, 
Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.